chapters 5 and 6, which are on page 673 in the Church Bibles. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfil it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfil your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfil it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. This is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labour under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I have seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour so that they lack nothing their hearts desire but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, 
I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place? Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger. The more words, the less the meaning, and how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Thanks, Margaret. Uh, well read. Uh, do keep that passage open. Or I think all the verses are on the screen today. I was congratulated. I can't even speak. It's a good start. Congratulated for having a 41-page slideshow today. <laughs> Holiday snaps and everything. No, don't worry. Uh, well, there's lots in this passage. We haven't got time to look at it all. Uh, but uh, if you've got questions for bits, uh, bits we don't pick up, then do just catch me afterwards or, or drop me a, a message in the week. Uh, the secular American author, you might have heard of him, David Foster Wallace, observed this. He says, everybody worships. The only choice you get is what to worship. And the compelling reason to maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where your tap, sorry, is that, if that is where you uh, tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body, he says, and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your intellect, uh, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of finding out. Uh, not long after saying all of that uh, to a graduating class at an American university, uh, he committed suicide. Um, we all worship something, or it will eat you alive. Uh, sorry, if you worship the wrong thing, it will eat you alive. Well, clearly, whatever he worshipped ate him alive. Uh, let's pray now as we look at this passage that we will worship something worthy of our attention. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we reflect on life, we know how true those words are of uh, David Foster Wallace, that we all worship something, and they normally eat us alive. Will you show us the danger of these things, and will you show us a greater truth in yourself? Amen. Uh, we'll call this first section, uh, Don't Worship Self, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Uh, have a look at verses 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
Go near to listen rather than to, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with, with your mouth. Do not even, sorry, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Uh, it ought to be obvious, shouldn't it, that when we approach God, the creator of all things in this universe, uh, and that was represented in the Old Testament, that approach of God by going to the temple, it ought to be obvious that we should do that carefully. Uh, guard your steps, says the teacher of Ecclesiastes. Go near to listen. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools, he says, by which he means opening your mouth and declaring your own righteousness before God. Or don't go in with an air of significance or superiority or with uh, plenty to say for yourselves. Because they, he says, all demonstrate one thing, the end of verse 1, that we do not know what we do wrong. Uh, the, the teacher sees this kind of direct correlation between the person who is always talking and declaring how right they are uh, and the person who doesn't truly appreciate their position before God. Uh, it's the defense of so many in our society, isn't it? I'm, I'm a good person, uh, you know, especially compared to X, Y, or Z. God, would, God just can't judge me. Uh, but it's also perhaps the voice we hear in Christian circles. Well, God will forgive me anyway, so I can just do this one more time. So I can do that or that, that or this. Or I don't need to repent every day because I'm not that, that bad. I'm quite a good Christian, really. Verse 2, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you, we, are on earth, so let your words be few. It's quite a warning, isn't it? In other words, we are to know our lowly place before our almighty creator God, rather than worshipping ourselves. As the saying goes, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool uh, rather than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> Hold your tongue. Hold your heart. Stay on your knees. Listen. Don't talk. Do we appreciate who we stand before? Quiet, humble, repentant, daily calling on God's gracious mercy. That is our only hope and the only right sacrifice before God. Oh, we have heard it repeatedly through Ecclesiastes, haven't we? We're, we're small, we're insignificant, we're, we're temporary, we're quickly forgotten by the next generation once we've gone. All of those things under the sun, meaningless in that, in that sense. How can we approach God with arrogance or with words of self-justification, with worship of ourselves? No, be quiet and still humble and repentant for our failings and because we are low in our position before him. God Almighty is beyond our time, we were told in a previous chapter. Beyond our understanding, we're told all the way through the book. He created all things. The world that goes round and round and round in his cyclical fashion of, of which we belong to is just merely a word on his lips. Stay quiet for a minute. Calm yourselves says the teacher. It's not all about you and me. 
verse 3. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is, uh, it is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger. My, my vow was a mistake. Let me off. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Oh Lord, I'm, I'm not that bad a person. You need to forgive and accept me because, you know, it's, it's not that bad. Oh Lord, if you answer my prayer, then I'll do X, Y and Z for you. Oh Lord, how pleased I am that I'm not quite as bad as that person over there. I'm not pointing at anyone. Oh Lord, I'll go to church every week if you give me what I ask. Oh Lord, this life really isn't fair on me. I, I do deserve a bit better. Oh Lord, my busy life and my mind that caused me to have worrisome dreams are proof that I'm worthy of your attention. Uh, the teacher simply observes, if you're going to make vows uh, and deals with God, then you better well make sure you keep them. It's not God's problem if fools make foolish deals with him. If you worship yourself, you better make good yourself. Seems to be his point. And we know how that will end, as did our author we quoted at the beginning. No, stay quiet. Listen to the Lord God, rather than talk and speak of how we will save ourselves as humanity. Uh, of course, we don't uh, attend the temple anymore to meet with God. Uh, Jesus has given us the presence of God through his spirit who now lives in our hearts if we repented and believed in the Lord Jesus. He speaks to us by his spirit through his word, the Bible. Well, that makes it better, doesn't it? It means we're humble and quiet in our whole lives. Not just once a week when we go to temple, our lives reflect a humble, repentant quietness before God, listening to his word before our own. Our life now reflects the fruits of the Spirit. Rather than foolish chatter and deals and justifications before God, uh, we sound much more like uh, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do you notice each of those demonstrates a quiet humility before God, don't they? They're not proud or arrogant. They're all about a quietness before God and a love for him and for others. It's quite hard, though, to read these words and, uh, and not to apply it to the public gathering of church as well. So it applies to our daily lives as a principle, uh, but there's a, there's a public aspect to these verses as well. Uh, why are we here? Why do we come to church? Are we here to gain something, to prove to God or to others how good we are and, and that we're just sort of a bit worthy and a bit godly and a bit okay, to get a few feelings of worth or power? Or to complain, perhaps, that others haven't served us properly or our needs aren't being met by the congregation or, or whatever. Because we meet here because deep down it's about us. It's what we want and what we need. It's about self-worship. 
what we're truly interested in might be us. Or are we here to be quiet and to be humble, to listen to God speak through his word, to praise his name for he is worthy, not us, to to lay aside our cares and our worries that cause us to dream and justify our own lives, to put our self-righteousness again at the foot of the cross, to be reminded that we are small and unworthy, but we have a glorious and almighty God. The world does not like this kind of thinking. It's not, uh, it's not very politically correct to say that we're insignificant, but we worship something magnificent. Perhaps if we worship self, we don't really like this message that's not all about me, me, me. How am I being served? What is good for me? But true faith is very different to the world. It's, it's all about the glory of God, not about you and me. Even our salvation is not all about you and me. Uh, Isaiah 61 verse 3 says of those who are being saved by God, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Our salvation is for God's glory, not for ours. Of course, we are eternally joyful and grateful for his kindness to us. How could it be any other way? But salvation is not designed to elevate us. It's designed to elevate God and his glory. What we do here and in our lives is for God's glory, not for our own. It means that when we pray, we ought to be able to say at the end of our prayer, for for your glory, Lord, not for mine. We might pray for a promotion or for healing or for enough food or for enough money to pay the bills. But we should only pray that if we can honestly say, for your glory, not for mine. Or we can sing of encouragement to one another, but only if it's for the glory of God, not, not ours. We can preach words of edification, but only if it's for the glory of God. Uh, the, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes summarizes this whole idea in two words uh, in verse 7 at the end of this little section. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Fear God. He is worthy of all glory. Uh, Hebrews twelve twenty eight puts it like this. Therefore, since we are receiving... A kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That is fearing God, isn't it? We are thankful for all we've been given and so we worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Do not worship self, fear God, the teacher tells us. Uh, well, that's the, uh, the first little section of today's passage. We're going to move on to the next. Uh, and the teacher returns to uh, his theme that he started in chapter 4 about oppression. Uh, but he now takes a longer look at why oppression exists in the world. And what is the idol that we all worship that brings about this oppression? So have a look at uh, verse 8 and 9. This is don't worship money. 
verse 8 and 9. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Uh, His point, as we saw last week, is that oppression in our world is everywhere. Uh, We shouldn't, even can't be surprised, because actually our whole world works on this principle. Uh, It starts at the top, and it works its way unavoidably down. The king at the very top, at the top of the pyramid, profits from his position and privilege. Uh, To make his money, he has to take it from those below him, and so on and so forth. Uh, To some extent... Uh, this should all be okay if, as we saw last week, he just takes one handful with peace rather than taking two handfuls. But as we all know, we all want two handfuls. And it's all rooted, verse 10, in the worship uh, of money. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless, he says. How ironic that the worship of money not only oppresses those below us who we take from, but uh, also enslaves us who seek it. The thing we worship dissatisfies us. Verse 13 of chapter 5, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune so that uh, when they have children, there was nothing left for them to inherit. Uh, The lover of money is never satisfied. They always want more, and so we never find happiness. Money is a cruel master, he says, always demanding more of our time, more of our energy, more of our toil. Uh, The image is clear in verse 17 of chapter 5. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Or chapter 6, verse 2, God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless. A grievous evil. How true those words are. How blind and dark we are when we put our goals and our dreams in the hands of a God like money, says the uh, teacher of Ecclesiastes. Uh, One commentator puts it like this, it's on the screen. Even the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but human beings are too stupid to recognise their creator. So they go on hoarding goods to their own harm, even though these possessions do the owner no real good while he or she possesses them, but bring them lack of satisfaction, worry, sleeplessness, frustration and anger. Uh, What is fascinating about all of this, though, is that God has designed it to be this way. Did you see that at the end of verse 2? This sinful, evil desire of humankind to worship money, God allows and is designed to frustrate us so that if we are wise, we return again to fear him. Uh, You see this actually all through Scripture 
Um, for example, God predicted the same uh, thousands of years ago when he blessed the Israelites, uh, if you remember, as they left uh, Egypt, and he promised them the covenant land that was to come. And he says, when you enter this land, this is Deuteronomy 8 verse 14, uh, then your hearts will become proud and you will forget the Lord. He predicts it. Things are going to go well and you're going to forget me. You're going to forget the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And in verse 17, uh, uh, Nigel referred to it earlier, you may say to yourself at that point, when things are going well, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. How familiar those words are to our own lives. Look at all I've achieved with my strength and with my hands and with my efforts. It's funny how close uh, the relationship between worshipping self and worshipping money are. And how quickly they both let us forget a right fear and worship of an almighty God who gives us everything. He is our only hope. He is the only way to avoid right judgment when Jesus returns or we die, whichever comes first. And so we must repent and be humble before him. Without many words, we're quiet and we listen. Because we need Jesus, who takes our sin upon himself. It is time, if we haven't done it already, to abandon our idols of self and money. And instead, in our final point, we should worship God. Uh, that means that when life is good, uh, we don't pat ourselves on the back or seek more and more of the same, because we know where that leads. But rather, uh, verse 18 of chapter 5, uh, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the, uh, the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. That's all we're going to get out of life, just be satisfied with the normal. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. I take this to mean that in whatever hand we are given by God, we worship the gift giver, not the gift. Uh, Paul picks up uh, almost exactly the same theme in uh, 1 Timothy 6. Uh, he says this, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a great phrase. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Why would we do that to ourselves? Now, some of us 
uh, will need to repent again, or perhaps repent for the first time for seeking and worshipping money or ourselves, not God. Some of us might need to repent before God for begrudging him for the life that we have been given. Worshipping money and self just leads to grief in this life and judgment in the next. We all need to come again to the foot of the cross of Jesus in quiet humility, in repentance and faith to find the only lasting truth and joy in this life and the next. It is incredible that the God we are right to fear and come humbly and quietly before is the same God, the same almighty creator God who gives us his only precious son, the Lord Jesus, as a sacrifice to make right all of those things we've been talking about, our sins. Let us not be blinded by the darkness. Let us come again to our almighty God, who though we are small and unworthy, and although we worship ourselves and our money, and although we deserve nothing and should come instead quietly and humbly before him, despite all that, he still loves us enough to give us his own son for his own glory. Uh, if you'd like an encouraging verse on all of this, uh, then let me give you Hebrews 13, chapter 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. What a promise. What great news that God will never leave or forsake us. And all we need to do, come before him quietly, in humility and repentance, trusting in Jesus to give us what we don't deserve. Worship God by listening to him. Hear his promises of forgiveness and grace through Jesus. Hear him promise he will never leave or forsake us. For those truths are the ones that will set us free from worshipping self or worshipping money. And instead, we can trust him and him alone. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray the words of Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So, dear Lord, we pray, Hebrews 13, 5. Keep our lives free from the love of money. And allow us to be content with what we have, because you have promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Amen. Amen.